This is a message for those that work in manufacturing across the UK and Ireland. Do your engineering maintenance stores keep you awake at night? Are your engineers spending excessive time sourcing and finding the spare parts they need? Eric's on-site teams take responsibility for your indirect supply chain, including both your MRO procurement and inventory control. And, as the name suggests, we do this while being based on your site. For more information, visit www.erics.co.uk forward slash em. This episode of Engineering Matters is supported by The Optimistic Outlook. The Optimistic Outlook is a great listen for fans of Engineering Matters. It is a podcast for anyone intrigued by innovation across sectors, whether you're in healthcare, infrastructure, energy or beyond. The show is hosted by Barbara Hampton, CEO of Siemens USA, and offers invaluable insights relevant and impactful for all industries. I think what you're really going to like is that Barbara Hampton is not just a CEO, she's a thought leader in the corporate world. In the podcast, you often learn from her journey to the top of Siemens USA, getting invaluable lessons on leadership, decision-making, and navigating the complexities of the modern workplace. Barbara brings a wealth of knowledge, not just about manufacturing, but about its ripple effects across all sectors. Her perspective illuminates how manufacturing innovations are setting the pace for changes in healthcare, infrastructure development, energy sustainability, and more. Regardless of your industry, the optimistic outlook is a source of motivation and forward-thinking ideas. Barbara's expertise in connecting dots between manufacturing and other sectors reveals actionable strategies for innovation and leadership in any field. We invite you to explore the optimistic outlook and join a broad audience that values transformative ideas, including us. Search for the optimistic outlook wherever you get your podcasts. The Slovenian Prime Minister has said the Alpine nation is facing its biggest natural disaster yet. Floods have ravaged almost two-thirds of Slovenia. While rescuers are struggling to reach high-altitude areas, villages in the northwestern parts of the country are submerged in flood waters. The Slovenian Prime Minister has said torrential rains have led to damages worth... Earthquakes, hurricanes, floods or wars... When disaster strikes, victims can be left isolated and trapped in areas where they are unsafe, where it is difficult for rescuers to reach them. We need to find a new way to explore hazardous areas, one that can find victims without creating new risks. Three researchers have an idea. They want to build a vast robot army. It might sound like something from the darkest realms of science fiction. But these robots will not be silent or battle droids. They will not be commanded by Skynet or the Borg. They will be tiny. And they will be here not to conquer, but to help. Hello, and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Kiri Jayanatham. And I'm Rian Owen.
In this episode, we are going to see how tiny can also be mighty. We are going to explore the challenges of making the very, very small do something very, very tough. Microbots could be our future first responders, but they will have to be designed to survive in unforgiving conditions where all normal means of support are broken down when disaster strikes. I think the first time somebody asked me the question, like, what is a robot? I said all the things that a robot wasn't. That was Elizabeth Farrell Hilbling. Her friends and colleagues call her Farrell. She's an assistant professor of electrical and electronic engineering at Cornell University. And when she's not putting people right on what a robot isn't, she's well placed to describe what one is. At its most basic, a robot is something that can sense, plan, and then act. Developing robots first requires an understanding of what you want the robot to do. There are a bunch of robotics or labs and people who work in robotics who work in these sub areas, right, to determine what the best sensors are for different applications and different constraints too. So you can have robots that are soft, you can have robots that are really small, you can have robots that need to go into like highly unconstrained environments. And then you need to develop each of the technologies and components that will make those robots possible. And so you can have sensors labs, right? And then you can have labs that are just building the next great computer and like the next great like small scale chips that can go on yeah. board, right? And figuring out like how much processing you need. Farrell's specialism is in micro-robotics. Even within that tiny realm, her work touches on a wide range of disciplines. So micro-robotics is a field of robotics, and it still spans, you know, electrical engineering, computer engineering, uh, mechanical engineering, even materials. Materials comes in a lot um, when dealing with small-scale robots. And it also spans quite a large range, right? I work in insect-scale robots, so anything that is smaller than, you know, five centimeters, I really count as insect-scale. And that can go all the way down to you know, a couple of millimeters. And now even it can get down to microns. You know, we can build robots that can walk, that can be manufactured on a silicon wafer and then walk away. Human-sized robots are now mundane. We work alongside them in factories. We see them deployed in nuclear power plants. But what can their tiny counterparts do? So now that we can build them, we're like, okay, what what can we do with these things? Um, there's a lot of technology fallout that comes out of this. So people have been using these for medical devices, really small-scale end defectors, um, for minimally invasive surgeries. That's one area that has direct impact, like right now. Applications for these specific robots, um, you can have distributed sensor networks, you can start using them in the Internet of Things that everybody keeps talking about as like kind of the next industrial revolution. The Internet of Things is a network of physical devices. That's your smart lights and heating, but also the sensors in your car, internet connected medical devices, or the assistant in your earbuds that lets you turn on your heating as you head home. In manufacturing, a similar concept is called Industry 4.0, or the fourth industrial revolution. 
Both share the overall goal of creating tools and techniques to enable smart, seamless communication and automation with enhanced efficiency. You can also move into hazardous environments, right? That's one of the big parts of robotics is you want to do something that is dirty, dull or dangerous, right? Anything where you don't want a human to do it or humans don't want to do it. So a dangerous situation, you have a thousand of these robots, right? You can very quickly map an environment, you can localize a source, you can detect and trace. And so that's one really good area. For stuff that I've worked on in the past with small flying robots, one of the big application areas we were thinking about was crop pollination, being able to pollinate crops, um, having uh, an alternative to uh, natural bees, shipping bees across countries and continents um, so that we can do crop pollination. If we could have a robotic solution, that would be helpful. And just getting into areas that are too small for either a larger robot or for a human to get to. So search and rescue applications or any type of stealth application that you could think of. Back in 2019, Farrell helped set up a research program at Cornell that would help develop one of the components needed for efficient, autonomous micro-robots. The research was led by Robert Shepard, and the team was joined by Assistant Professor of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering, Sadaf Sabani, a recent winner of NASA's Early Career Faculty Award. Also on the team was Cameron Orbin, who had at the time just finished his PhD and is now at the University of Michigan. I'm an incoming Assistant Professor at the University of Michigan uh, in the Robotics Department, and uh, formerly a Research Assistant at Cornell University in the mechanical engineering department. And we started working on this project probably about five years ago. And Ronald Heiser, who is continuing his postdoc career at MIT. I'm uh, currently a postdoc at MIT um, in Ritu Rahman's group studying muscle-based actuators uh, at Cornell. I just finished my PhD uh, earlier this year. I was in Rob Shepard's lab, along with Cameron, um, and I was uh, a collaborator of his and really his partner for this combustion project, which I had my own take on the project, making a um, array of small actuators, which I had published a couple years before Cameron. But, you know, we worked closely throughout building the experimental setup and kind of understanding how to do experiments together and kind of, you know, refining the, the practices and methods of analysis. By the time Ronald got to Cornell University, Cameron had already begun working on his project, testing possible methods out. Ronald's knowledge of actuators was critical to the project. He collaborated with Cameron on tests that use combustion to power the micro-robots. So my project actually began trying to investigate whether combustion could be used to produce haptic stimulus. I don't know if you've seen the movie Ready Player One, but envisioning a haptic feedback vest or glove to accompany and enhance the virtual reality experience. The dream is to have something that's untethered, so you're not connected to the wall socket or you're not connected to some pump or some other material that's bulky, but you can have all of your energy all of your actuators uh, in a lightweight framework on you, on the device. So given the 
high energy density of fuels, given that you can flow gas through really, really small channels, we thought that there might be a way to engineer a, a system in which you could get haptic feedback using combustion. Cameron and the team then developed the collaboration further, working with colleagues and Cornell and overseas. We worked with Sadaf Sapani, uh, who is a mechanical engineering faculty member at Cornell as well, uh, an expert on combustion uh, for our uh, theory. And then we also had a collaboration uh, with Amir Gat at uh, the Technion in Israel. And his group specializes in fluidics and modeling of these systems. And we uh, use their expertise to help model the behavior of our actuators um, which was actually quite a, a, a difficult task um, to uh, sort of gain insight and intuition into what's happening at these these small scales. The sort of underlying idea was to develop a technology that would allow us to have higher energy density and higher power density in micro-robotic systems. Cameron and his team have taken their inspiration from natural evolution. And by looking to nature, to insects in particular, the team was able to find inspiration for their work, shrinking propulsion while maintaining power. What does that mean? When we think about robots, we use bioinspiration a lot of the time. So we're thinking about imitating nature and that can be at the macro scale, things that are humanoid robots, things that are resembling quadrupeds like dogs or cats. And some scientists uh, look at the small scale uh, and work on things inspired by insects. And when we think about insects, we often think about their sort of feats that belie their, their small size, right? So we think about uh, ants having the ability to lift heavy weights or bees flapping their wings very quickly or even even animals like hummingbirds, which are not insects but are of comparable size scale, being able to, to hover in the air. And they do all of these things really well and the robots of similar size do not do these things very well. And so we wanted to uh, sort of bridge that gap and we wanted to use chemical fuels to do that. The reason we use chemical fuels is that they have uh, a higher energy content uh, than batteries at that scale. Uh, and so for us, we were looking at uh, hydrocarbons and combusting these chemical fuels to achieve uh, greater performance, greater power at these small scales. It was important to find a way for the robots to move without tethers to develop their full potential. And that would allow them to be used for a very broad range of commercial applications, as well as for emergency response. The field in general looks at a couple of different areas where things might be really useful. So digital agriculture is one area, potentially using bugs as these, these robot bugs as pollinators, um, or even for environmental monitoring, um, sampling soil, sampling uh, different humidity, weather conditions, things like that, uh, pH even, and also Exploration and search and rescue are, are, are common areas where we think these uh, technologies might be useful. Not just the ones that I've developed, but the ones that the field is developing. Um, so these, these robots are in theory small and uh, can get into places where humans potentially cannot. Um, and so that could be useful for everything from 
environmental exploration to exploring uh, industrial systems. So you can think of a robot, maybe putting a small robot inside of a, uh, a, a jet uh, engine um, and having it crawl around and looking for cracks uh, in, in, in any of the, uh, the uh, systems. So that's a that's a tight space where humans have you know would have difficulty you know getting inside of without pulling everything apart right so there's lots of different areas where they could potentially be viable. The problem was one of actuation. Actuation is the action that causes a machine, or in this case, a robot, to move and operate. Micro actuation, where micro is not microscopic, but millimeter scale or smaller, is you know, something that's been studied since probably the 70s and 80s, but has typically been with you know trying to shrink motors down using materials that bend and stress when you apply uh, an electric field to them or run a current through them, and materials that uh, expand or contract when you heat them up. And so from the standpoint of robotics, um, and there, there are other uh, methods that people have used to create motion at that size. We're used to thinking about devices like robots at smaller and smaller scales. At the smallest scale, this is nanotechnology. The term nanorobot is often used to describe hypothetical microscopic robots small enough to move around the human body to deliver medical treatments. Current nanotechnology research primarily focuses on materials, devices and systems rather than autonomous robots in the traditional sense. Actuation of these nanodevices may take researchers in entirely new directions, drawing from inspirations like the flagellum that power bacteria. The microbots the Cornell team have been researching are significantly larger. Their size will influence how they may be used. They won't be swimming through anyone's bloodstream to deliver medicine. But developing actuation in micro-robots will also require relatively high levels of self-contained power and a novel approach to design. Yeah, I, I like to draw an analogy to drums. They kind of are shaped like little drums. I think this is a good analogy for the listeners to to hear. And so the actuators are, are shaped a little bit like drums, the musical instrument, where it is a rigid cylinder with the top of it open, and that open top is covered by a stretchable material. Instead of an animal skin or a leather or whatever do you use for a musical instrument, we're using a silicone rubber. We can picture how the expansion of the drum skin in this analogy might propel a robot. But how would the team put this into practice? We flow a combination of methane and oxygen gases into these tiny volumes, these tiny drums, and a, a quick spark uh, generated between two wires by offboard electronics ignites that fuel and causes a very miniature explosion. And that causes that drum skin to inflate and apply an upward force. And then we can combine that with legs or linkages or end effectors or diff just different things to apply that force in, in creative ways. And our, our demonstration was based on uh, building a robot sort of around this technology. 
This is a very different way of propelling a machine compared to those we might see routinely in larger mobile devices. There are no pistons here, no electric motors, no hydraulic pumps. So why pick such a novel approach? So the actuators are very high performance uh, for their size and their weight. And so when you compare it to other actuators at this scale, those are predominantly driven by electrical means. Ours are driven by a combination of electrical to ignite the fuel and uh, chemical, as in supplying the, the fuel for combustion and actuation. And uh, where our actuators really shine is their force output and their, and their ability to displace, uh, so, so how much they actuate, how much they move. The robotic demonstration by the researchers at Cornell University has provided a stepping stone for further possibilities in future study on the movement of microbots. so we can get really interesting opportunities that we don't see with larger robots. Jumping is a really good example, right? Because we can store a lot of energy in a tiny body, and then we can jump really high because there's no mass, right? So you, you store all this energy, and then you have very little mass moving through the air, so you can get these really high jumps compared to something that is larger. Picture a flea under a microscope with its legs tucked up below its tiny body. It can jump almost 150 times its own height. Now turn your mind's eye to ants defending their colony. They'll swarm over a much larger predator without apparent regard for their own well-being. Also because things are so small, they're relatively cheap to make, so you can build a lot of them. So you can do a lot of really interesting things about what are you going to do with robot collectives. Because having one robot work in an environment is really interesting. You can spend millions of dollars on a single robot. If it falls into a ditch, right, it's your, your project is done. Or if it trips over itself, your project is done. But if you have a thousand robots, right, that's, you know, you could probably understand a little bit more of the scene than you could with just one. And with their tiny mass, creatures like this suffer much less harm when they crash into their surroundings. Also, you don't really care if they break. Um, and they're so low mass that they're not going to break as often. Um, you know, insects can fly into walls. Cockroaches can slam into things that they don't see, right? And keep moving, and that's not a problem. Whereas most of the time when you're dealing with something that is larger, like a humanoid or, you know, a self-driving car, you have to be very careful about not running into anything about not touching anything, about having a very good map of your environment uh, to make sure that you know exactly where you're going, what your path plan is. And that's really not as much of a concern. But to create this army of athletic, replaceable, durable robots, Pharrell, Cameron and Ronald and the rest of the team need to find a way to build each robot as cost-effectively as possible. When we think about the ways that we're developing these robots, we want to always consider scalability. Presently, a lot of robots at this size scale are pretty bespoke. And so there are a combination of manual assembly 
and semi-automated assembly processes. And so um, a popular way of creating robots at this scale is to laminate several different materials together and then laser cut them out. Um, and, and, and by doing so, by layering a combination of like rigid and compliant materials and conductive and insulating materials, you can create different uh, basically tab and slot style designs that you can put together to create linkages, to create uh, electrically active materials, um, actuators, sensors, things like that. The lamination approach allows for complex assemblies at a tiny scale. But the Canal team have turned to novel technologies for an even simpler production process. For our approach, we turn to 3D printing. Our robot is probably a little bit simpler mechanically, but it is pretty easy to manufacture in that we can 3D print most of these parts that we need, the body, the legs, and then sort of have a, only a little bit of manual assembly uh, where we connect sort of everything together. And so it's it's semi-scalable in that regard, but 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 there is still this this human element that we want to sort of move out of the uh, picture uh, if we were to think about making these in in quantities of hundreds or thousands. In the most delicate industrial operations, assembling electronics, for example, humans lack precision. Conveyor belts, vacuum pickers, and other large-scale devices each have their own challenges. They can dirty a clean room or fail halting operations while repairs are made. Could the team design robots small and cheap enough to carry these components like leaf cutter ants? So I, I look and I, I think a lot about pick and place machines for, for electronics and how that could potentially be applied to a system like this. There are um, manufacturing strategies that lend themselves to what we're doing. Um, I think that that's one of the more attainable aspects, honestly, of this project is, is sort of scaling up. When we consider our existing designs, um, they're, they're made for pennies. If you think about the material cost of, of uh, resins to 3D print with or the small amounts of wire or, or silicone rubber or things like that that I used to, to sort of build these actuators and these robots, um, they're already very cheap. And so um, we can think of, uh, you know, compatible ways to, to leverage that, certainly. But does this sort of application really require such a novel approach to actuation? Today, batteries are becoming the dominant way for moving devices and vehicles, from smart vacuum cleaners and scooters, all the way up to HGVs and even aeroplanes. So why not use batteries for these tiny robot helpers? And with decarbonisation driving innovation elsewhere, why look back to hydrocarbons? Much of our industrial machinery, uh, you know, cars, you know, right, uses uh, combustion to move around. And so we're not exactly reinventing the wheel here. Uh, what, what I'm not advocating for is the widespread usage of hydrocarbons or chemical fuels in robots at the macro scale, because I think at that scale, batteries are sufficient. It's when you get to small scales that batteries uh, don't even exist that have the requisite voltages, power density, energy density uh, to even manipulate and move these robots, these very power hungry actuators that are that come with these robots. A lot of these uh, robots require high voltages, for example, 
to use these different these different microactuators. I need high voltages to create a spark. Others need high voltages to move different electroactive materials. Um, and you have this problem with battery scaling, where batteries scale. It's a it's an inverse squared cube relationship. So as they get smaller, the energy components scale with with volume, and the sort of covering the spacing spacers within the batteries. At this scale, batteries cannot supply the power needed. And other non-power components of each cell take up proportionally more space. So at small scales, it's, it's not a question of should we use batteries or, or combustibles. It's a question of can the robot not move at all in some cases, or can we, can we actually have meaningful uh, operation using uh, these, uh, these combustible fuels? And so environmental impacts, um, they're a little bit loud. It depends on how you're running these actuators. It can be quite quiet depending on how you uh, package them, or it can be uh, a little bit loud at higher frequencies or higher uh, equivalence ratios, which just means more fuel relative to air in your air-fuel mixture. So combustion is an efficient way to power these devices and maybe a more viable option at these tiny scales and electric power. But combustion is, at any scale, a controlled, fiery explosion. And these explosions are taking place within tiny structures. How do you harness this power without destroying the robot or risking damage to its surroundings? We specifically chose a 3D printed material from a company called Carbon. They are a, uh, an SLA 3D printing company that has a, a very wide materials library. And one of the materials, uh, which is called EPX86FR, it's a little bit of a mouthful. The FR stands, stands I think, for flame resistance. Um, and, and the material itself is, uh, is a, a, a flame resistant material, which is to say that it is sort of self-extinguishing. If it is rated to a certain level where if a fire were to occur, it, it, it auto quenches itself. And we leverage that material in addition to uh, different uh, geometries with these robots to, to sort of make it so that when there's combustion happening, um, you get uh, the force applied from the combustion reaction, but the reaction happens very quickly and only lasts for a very brief amount of time. In other words, we don't have jets of fire shooting out of our robot. We, we have this sort of self-quenching uh, response that happens as a, a byproduct of the material and the volumes that we're using and again the geometry. And that allows us to operate these uh, actuators at very high frequencies without the need for valves to sort of keep everything in place. This innovation may not lead to a robot army taking over our jobs or the planet. But it shows us where future research could lead. By developing a new approach to actuation, the Cornell team are showing that we may be able to design millimetre scale robots able to work autonomously. Perhaps in a couple of decades, the hazardous jobs of today could be performed by cheap micro-robots Space, the ocean depths, and disaster-struck areas could be surveyed and explored without risk to human safety. Science and technology progress in small steps, one idea or discovery leading to another. And each tiny push of these microbots' propulsive drums takes us a little further into the future.
Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Kiri Jayanatham. My co-host was Rhea Owen. Script editing by Will North. Series supervision by John Young. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. And the actuator powering us forward is Rory Harris. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, and on LinkedIn. <laughs>